Okay, well, let's start the proceedings here. Welcome to a special short additional bonus episode of the uh, Life is Sweet podcast. Um, if you uh, listened to the last podcast, you probably heard uh, something about me uh, threatening to read a nonfiction book and then uh, talk about it on the podcast. And uh, that, in fact, uh, has come to fruition. Um, I need reasons to read nonfiction books and uh, maybe having to do uh, some extra podcast episodes about it is a good way to uh, get through reading a nonfiction book. We don't have a title for this little, like, uh, John Reads series yet. It's like, uh, I guess you've all heard of Canada Reads, but uh, this is John Reads. It's different. It's one one person in Canada Reads. But many people in Canada have read this book that I am now reading, uh, which is called Clearing the Plains, uh, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life. Um, I guess if there's going to be uh, a content warning on this book, uh, that would be the content warning. Um, I think uh, all the unpleasant things will happen uh, in this book, but we're going to read about them. And I'm going to talk about them. And this is the introduction episode. Um, I'm just going to talk about the introduction a little bit. And if you out there in podcast land want to read along with me, um, you can jump in uh, on the next episode, which will be uh, chapter one. But this will just be the introduction uh, episode. So I think that's, that's what this is. All right. Uh, I guess I should talk about, uh, why I want to read this book. I think I mentioned in the last episode that, uh, after the news of the mass graves in the residential schools, uh, we're coming out this summer. I was asking Jill, um, hey, do we have any books about uh, Clearing the Plains? And she said, yeah, there's this book called Clearing the Plains, which we didn't have, but uh, I took it out from the library and then I bought it shortly afterwards. And uh, I suppose I want to learn more about the history of how mass graves be get to be on residential school sites. It seems quite... Uh, like, uh, quite, quite an important thing to know about, uh, historically. I think it's important to know the history of the places that you live, um, because that's where we grew up. That's where our families came from, such as, you know, there were indigenous people living in the places where my family settled here in the Red River Valley. Um, and now there aren't any more, not really. There are a lot of indigenous people who live in Winnipeg, but, uh, very few have like farms around Niverville or Steinbeck, for instance. Um, and so what was the process like 
who are the people that lived here before my European settler family arrived in the 1870s? And how did it be that uh, they became not really here and my family came here? So that is what I want to figure out. So I think clearing the plains is a good place to start with that. Um, also, um, it's a really popular book. So a lot, a lot of people who are reading about the, the history of indigenous people here on the prairies will have read this book or it will be something that's like easily accessible, um, easily readable, something that you've heard about, something you can go down to your local library or bookstore and, and pick up and read. You might know people who have read it before. Maybe you yourself have read it before. So um, that's a reason why this book in particular. But uh, yeah, it's won a bunch of prizes. Uh, ironically enough, it's won the Sir John A. MacDonald Prize, as well as the Aboriginal History Prize. Um, the Governor General's History Award. So... It comes highly recommended from those people who give out book prizes in Canada. Um, I've heard there's some criticism of the book that it doesn't use enough, uh, like, indigenous sources for its material. Um, and that James, the author, is James Dashuk himself. I don't believe he is indigenous. Um, he is from Timmins, Ontario, and Dashuk, I don't know, it seems, sounds a little Ukrainian. Uh, who knows? What's that? I would look it up before I've, I said that. I've looked it up. Oh, okay. He, it, uh, people say that he's not indigenous. I can't find anywhere, or I haven't looked it up, or I haven't found out where it says that he is or not. That is one of the criticisms that this person is not, not indigenous. Uh, I think even uh, Negan James Sinclair addresses that in his foreword to the book, or at least mentions it. But uh, who knows? Maybe we, we'll find out. Like I said, he's from Timmins, Ontario. He has a PhD in history from the University of Manitoba. He is currently an associate professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Health Studies at the University of Regina and a researcher with the Saskatchewan Population Health and Evaluation Research Unit. So, essentially, I believe kinesiology is like uh, health, health studies, physical education, physical therapy. Your phys ed teacher might have a degree in kinesiology. Uh, your health teacher might. Um, but it's kind of interesting having a PhD in history and then being a uh, professor of of health studies or some such thing. 
but that's also that uh that's the reason that he wrote this book clearing the plains is he um was initially this is this is uh basically his phd dissertation um he spent i think he said he spent over 20 years researching it and then writing it or 20 years from like researching to publishing something like that and uh his main um main intention with the book was to kind of describe why the uh, health outcomes for indigenous people in Canada are so much worse than um the general population and so that led him to obviously delve into the history of why why that would happen and yeah i guess it's probably always worth noting again like another like reason why i'm interested in in this stuff is i've worked in like the nonprofit social services sector here in manitoba for most of my adult life going on like 20 years now the vast majority of the people that i've worked with uh in my job have been poor indigenous people um people who are have either been residential school survivors or descendants of residential school survivors people who have been um who are not able to live in their communities anymore for various reasons getting into trouble on their reserves or in downtown Winnipeg and and uh coming into contact with the police and the justice system and I worked with them in various like residential programs like alternative justice programs and just and also just general like supported residential uh programs supported living that's that kind of thing and so that's why I'm like really this story is basically the the story of all the clients and participants and people that I've that I've supported and worked with the story of my coworkers and all that stuff the story of of uh the vast majority of the people that I've spent time with in the past 20 years this is this is their story and this is where they came from so that's why it's important to me and also um Jill has indigenous family as well that have been directly affected by um the clearing of the plains and the indigenous history here in Canada so that's also the history of many of her family members and uh by extension since she is my partner it's the history of um my family members now so um this is there's very much uh, a family personal connection um to this topic sue so, um i think we've mentioned on the podcast before that um jill's stepfather is a member of the kawasis first nation where um if you remember the news over the summer um as most of us here in canada would the i think that was the first news of the mass graves no that was kamloops one of them it was one of the mass grave sites that was found the biggest the biggest yeah thanks so 
yeah, I'm just going to describe or like run down some of the uh, the intro stuff here before the first chapter. We're not going to get into the first chapter today. This is just an introductory episode. So uh, you open up the book, you get a publisher's note after the table of contents um, that says that uh, since the original publication of the book in 2013, some of the the terms, uh, preferred terminology has changed. Um, For instance, uh, it notes that the word aboriginal in the 2013 edition was changed to indigenous for the 2019 edition as time goes on terms change preferred terms change i think it's probably always the best thing to uh when you're talking about a person or a group of people to use their preferred terminology and this is seems to be uh there's some updates made to the text based on that and then after that is um, an introduction, or sorry, an invitation to all our relations by Negan James Sinclair. Uh, it says James Sinclair is Anishinaabe and department head of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. He's written the forward. I believe he's also the son of Senator Murray Sinclair, who was was the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. So, I guess that places him in quite a prominent position here. So he's... And his... Um, and his little, uh, little section here uh, is... deals with... Um, well, he highlights the explicitly, I guess, like political and economic facet of the story of clearing the plains. And uh, so he says in the book, the Dashik presents an intricate examination of how Canada cleared the plains coldly and opportun- opportunistically, taking advantage of a famine caused by the exploitation of bison populations and the flooding of Nakoda, Dakota, Nahiowak, Nitsitapi. Anishinaabe ter- and Anishinaabe territories by settlers. Please bear with me with the pronunciations. I am will do the best I can to pronounce the uh, the indigenous words, and I might get better as the book goes along as I get more used to it. Um, methodically, while using draconian legislation regarding indigenous peoples and starvation, Canadian leaders coerced First Nations leaders into signing treaties and drove their peoples onto reserves, establishing the circumstances and conditions in which indigenous communities could be controlled and exterminated physically and ideologically from the national consciousness. In other words, Canada forcibly and willfully manipulated, removed, and murdered indigenous peoples on the plains in the name of progress. In quotes. Uh, Literally clearing it for settlement. In countries of the world, this is called ethnic cleansing, extermination, and genocide. In Canada, this is called progress. None of this is an overstatement. It's all here in Dashuk's research. So um, it might seem like uh, really, really big, horrible claims uh, that he's making here, but um, I think 
the purpose of of reading this book is to see how um, all those things that he described actually happened and, and took place and backed up by uh, documentation and research. And it's, and it also follows the story and narrative of indigenous elders and people who've lived that, that history. So, um, there's that. He also goes on to say, Canada's settlement, growth, and economic development was not a simple, earned and positivistic set of events, but a cold, methodical, and exploitative plan built on the backs of Indigenous Canadians, or sorry, Indigenous peoples. Um, Canada didn't exist for a lot of that. He says the unbalanced and exploitative relationship Canada has when it comes to Indigenous peoples has done nothing but divide and perpetrate atrocities that continue to happen uh, daily. The dire poverty, health and safety situations and marginalization of Indigenous peoples face in every aspect of Canada's practices and policies cannot be denied any longer. This is not a blemish on an otherwise strong country. This is a condemnation of everything Canada purports to stand for, an ongoing violation of human rights and an unfulfilled potential that has never been achieved. So, again, per- pretty stark here in this uh, invitation to all our relations, but I think um, as we continue on the book, uh, continue on in the book, we uh, might see that this is in fact the case. He says, reconciliation is everyone's business. How we step into a future together will determine the future of our children. The truth is a crucial part of this, for it will gesture and point to how we act. So, I agree with that. Also, I guess like the topic of reconciliation will come up more as we go through the book, but I think it's probably helpful to think about like what that word reconciliation means and uh, who... Who is recons- Who is being reconciled? Who are the people who are reconciling? Um, what does what does that mean? Is it um, indigenous people and European settlers? Is it uh, like indigenous uh, like First Nations and the Canadian state? Is it uh, indigenous nations and Canadian companies, we shall, we shall see, I think, I think for someone like James Sinclair and maybe people who are more, uh, familiar with this history, I, um, maybe they would say that reconciliation between indigenous people and the Canadian state, uh, isn't possible that the purpose of the Canadian state is, uh, completely opposed to the well-being of of indigenous people, then maybe reconciliation has more to do with um, with ordinary people living in Canada, um, finding points of shared history and uh, building um, relationships based on solidarity and cooperation. I think that's. That's maybe what I would think. So after the 
invitation to all our relations. We have the foreword uh, written by Elizabeth A. Fenn. And she has, she is a Pulitzer Prize winner for history. Uh, she is the author of a couple books, Encounters at the Heart of the World and Pox Americana. Um, I don't know much about her. But she has won a Pulitzer Prize, and that's uh, a big deal as far as I know. That's a big prize. The Pulitzer Prize. Everyone knows the Pulitzer Prize. And her forward, I think, has more... She's more addressing the uh, the health side rather than the polit political side. And... Uh, in her forward, she says Canada was built on the ravaged health of First Nations. So she's, she's, she's addressing that. Um, she notes that uh, Daschuk acknowledges that uh, pre-contact peoples in North America, like people everywhere, endured bouts of contagion, hunger, and violence, especially when volcanism brought on rapid cooling in the 13th and 15th centuries. I thought that was interesting. Actually, Elizabeth Fenn says pre-contact Canadians, but uh, I don't think there were any Canadians pre-contact. <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of interesting. But uh, other than that, um, right off the bat here in the in the foreword, she notes that um, that climate fact climate was a factor in people's health uh, before industrialization. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, even here in North America, um, she specifically says volcanism. I'm wondering, is that like uh, Icelandic volcanism? There was a little ice age in documented in Europe at that time, I think. Who knows? Climate was a factor in health before the, as it is now, and it was, it was before. She says these plagues circulated with a ferocity that might be hard to believe if Dastruck did not document it so well. This is interesting, it says, she says the 1821 merger of the Northwest and Hudson's Bay companies um, did little to stymie the disintegration of First Nations health. But uh, again, like, why would it? Um, I think it's interesting that she, it's an 1821 merger of companies. I don't think we usually think of like uh, big uh, companies merging. Um, in the 1800s, but the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Companies were big deals back then. Um, think of them as like Walmarts and, and Amazons now. Um, the Bay and the Northwest Company were, were big deals and they were... Um, They were monopolizing a trade in animal pelts that were being shipped over to Europe for um, clothing, like luxury clothing, top hats, stoles, I guess, things of that nature. And that was big business. It's hard to, hard to think of um, 
Manitoba and the wilderness of the of the shield and Hudson's Bay as being like a, like a hotbed of like of global capitalism but uh, it was at the time it, it was the the place to be this was the thing thing to do um but also that this uh that this type of that this type of like global trade isn't something that is just happening it's not just something that people are talking about and that that runs our lives that affects every aspect of our lives now here in the 21st century but uh it was also a thing back in 1821 and earlier even in the 1600s i think that's when i think that's when the hbc formed and came to well literally the hudson's bay so the story's been going on for a while um she talks about the um indigenous people here in red river in the red river valley this is where we are right now this is where my family settled um that the people here in the red river in the red river valley in the red river settlement no it says that game depletion drove others Anishinaabe and later Métis to take up lands at the Red River Settlement, which in the 1850s evolved into a sort of a bison abattoir, first for meat and then for hides, sold around the world. In 1862, the Red River herds were gone, signaling worse to come. And then at that point, uh, she says that's when Indigenous people turned to agriculture here in the Red River Valley. So there were Indigenous people practicing agriculture here uh, along the Red River uh, before my Mennonite family arrived. Um, yeah, the reason that they turned to agriculture was hunger. And then it says, it's here that clearing the plains takes uh, its most chilling turn. Hunger, sickness, and environmental upheaval collaborate in a twisted satanic choreography throughout the book so i that's uh something to look forward to learning about um and she notes that dashik's primary goal is to explain the origins of the health disparities that in that separate indigenous and non-indigenous canadians today those origins are no mystery to the first nations peoples who bear these stories in their in their families, in their traditions, and in their very flesh. That the rest of us are only learning the history now is a marker, on the other hand, of willful deafness, and on the other, of a dismaying dearth of indigenous historians in universities around the world. So, that is the foreword. Um... After that, there's a short introduction to the 2019 edition. Um, written by, this is by James Dashuk himself. 
Uh, he says, as I write this new introduction, tuberculosis rates in northern Canada are almost 300 times the rate of ca Canadian-born non-Indigenous people. Uh, so that's in 2019, two years before now. A uh, year after the publication of Clearing the Plains, Maclean's estimated that if the United Nations Human Development Index criteria were applied to reserve communities, they would rank 72nd on par with Romania, a significant decline from the ranking of 63rd when I wrote the introduction to the first edition. In January 2018, a federal cabinet minister conceded that Indigenous life expectancy was 15 years shorter than other Canadians. And since... Since 2016, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has issued five non-compliance orders to the Government of Canada for racial discrimination against First Nations children. In many communities, Indigenous youth continue to take their own lives, he says. And... Uh, the next sentence is here in Saskatchewan, the killing of Colton Bushy in 2016 and the acquittal of his killer deepened the racial divide that continues to cut across the province like a wound that will not heal. Uh, that was not too long ago. Um, people might remember that. And that, th these are uh, things that had happened in between the initial publication in 2013 and this edition in 2019. And of course, um, the, uh, for people who, who are not familiar or don't remember the, um, killing of Colton Bushy was a Saskatchewan farmer, um, killed a young indigenous person who was trespassing on their land. Uh, he shot them. Um, you can look it up. Uh, there was a trial. He was the uh, the farmer was acquitted. I think if you look into the details of it, it seems more like murder to me. But I guess I wasn't on that jury. And of course, since twenty nineteen, we now have the uh, global COVID nineteen pandemic. And um, some of the statistics that will come out of that uh, are going to be probably interesting to see how uh, Indigenous people here in Canada fare versus non-Indigenous people as far as uh, those death rates. So I think that's about it for the 2019 edition. Uh, he also notes that there's a study guide provided by the University of Regina Press that put out this book. I did search for it on, look for it on the website, but I couldn't immediately find it. Maybe it's still, maybe it's there. Maybe I just missed it. Uh, who knows? Maybe you want to go, go find it and maybe it will be helpful. Maybe I'll look for it again. And then we get to the introduction to the original edition, the 2013 edition. He says, the chasm between the health conditions of First Nations people and mainstream Canadians has existed for as long as anyone can remember. 
it too has become a part of who we are as a nation. Uh, the primary goal of the study is to identify the roots of the current health disparity between the indigenous and mainstream populations in Western Canada. Health as a measure of human experience cannot be considered in isolation from the social and economic forces that shape it. I think that's important. Uh, in Canada, the marginalization of First Nations people has been the primary factor impeding improved health outcomes for all its citizens. Uh, he goes on in the next paragraph, racism among policymakers and members of the mainstream society was a key factor in creating the gap in health circumstances health outcomes as well as maintaining a double standard for acceptable living conditions for the majority of the population and the indigenous minority. Uh, further down in the paragraph, he says the present study acknowledges the importance of racist ideology in the historical relationship between First Nations and the Canadian state. Rather than focusing on the ideas that fueled the marginalization of the reserve population or the worldview of the indigenous groups, who were eventually subjugated, this investigation considers the material conditions, the material conditions, the result of long-term economic and environmental forces that ultimately led to such divergent histories of population health in Western Canada. So that's, that's the main idea of the book, the main, the main mission here. Um, he goes on to say that this is not a work of ethno-history. He, um, he makes that distinction. Um, he says, to a significant extent, this is an investigation of what First Nations people did, where they lived, and what they ate over approximately 160 years as the global economy, described by Emmanuel Wallerstein as the modern world system, took hold on the Canadian plains. So he also says this isn't a this isn't an economic history of indigenous people on the plains either. Uh, he's primarily interested in health, in describing uh, the the health situation and what led into that, and specifically uh, what material conditions led to uh, lead to health. He is a health guy. He says American geographer Jason W. Moore asserted that economic and environmental changes are inseparable. The rise of a capitalist world economy and the rise of a capitalist world ecology were two moments of the same world historical process. In Western Canada, these two moments were at the heart of changes in the health of the indigenous population. Ultimately, the shift of the dominant economic paradigm from the fur trade to agriculture and industrial capitalism displaced the indigenous people from their once lucrative position on the periphery of the global economy. It was the alienation of First Nations from a viable economic base in the world system and the imposed environmental constraints of the reserve system that played a key role in the decline of their health in the late 19th century. Uh, prior to being excluded from participating in the agrarian economy that later emerged in the Canadian Plains, the First Nations in Western Canada had been active participants in the modern world system for at least 200 years. As the commercial fur economy took hold, Indigenous people increasingly made choices based 
on the demands and opportunities presented by market forces. Along with the invisible hand of the marketplace came unseen microbes that brought unprecedented sickness and death to the region. So as the economy changed, people, uh, people's movements changed. Um, my phone is... <laughs> uh, so as people as people are are sailing around the earth of going to other places coming from Europe to North America to uh to gather gather furs and take it back to to Europe they're bringing uh microbes and those guys those uh, microbe guys had a lot to do with what happens after <laughs> but they're primarily being but the people who are coming from Europe to North America are traitors are being, they're coming for economic reasons. They're being driven by an, a new type of economy um, called capitalism. So um, he points out the singularity of the encounter between the ecosystems of the old world and the new in the past 500 years is hard to fathom. The natural world, the world that existed here in North America 500 years ago um, is uh, doesn't exist anymore. It's really hard hard to tell uh, what it what it would have been like. Um, how many people lived here? What the natural landscape would have looked like? Um, things like that. The importance of introduced infectious disease cannot be overstated in the history of Indigenous America. In the Canadian Northwest, epidemics of introduced contagious diseases swept through the region with regularity from the 1730s to the 1870s. The generational cycle ended when medical intervention curbed their impacts. So that's really like fascinating here. Um, uh, here in 2021, uh, during the COVID epidemic, that uh, the general the generational cycle. This is like the generational cycle of, of uh, disease and e epidemics, like smallpox, ended when medical intervention curbed their impacts, like literally um, vaccines and quarantines. But uh, still, uh, here in 2021, we have, uh, we have a lot of people who are uh, resisting the curbing of uh, disease. Uh, things that people were using and to great effect uh, in the 1870s. I think when you're talking about like indigenous or more marginalized um, groups, you do have to take into account that these are people who have been subject to medical experimentation. Um, Obviously, a lot of the folks who are not getting the vaccine, even though they can, that is not why. But uh, you do want to acknowledge that, that history. True, that's a good point. That uh, there any, that resistance, I guess there is like a hesitance and resistance to vaccination among some, among some people in indigenous communities. And that is because there is a history of medical experimentation um, that they have been subjected to through the, the residential school experience, maybe earlier. 
Um, I would imagine that this book would address that. So we might might learn some more of that. Um, he says, the secondary goal of this book is to consider the role of disease in shaping the territorial history of the country between the Missouri River and the Boreal Forest in the years before Canada's acquisition of the West. So that's sort of the... Uh, the geography that we're that we're imagining that we're dealing with here, uh, the country between the Missouri River that's south of us uh, here in Canada, and the boreal forest that's to the east of us here in Winnipeg. <clears throat> Differential mortality and survival in epidemics provided the foundation for territorial change and the emergence of new ethnic identities under the process known as ethnogenesis. Disease and death came as unintentional but inexorable parts of the exchange between previously separated ecosystems. As survivors regrouped in the wake of repeated epidemics brought about by the biological unification of the planet, they responded to the ever-increasing influence of the global trading network. Expansion of the world economy and its attendant diseases shaped the responses of the surviving communities on the plains to the new economic realities. What brought death to some often translated into economic prosperity for others. And again, that also uh, echoes, has echoes to uh, how the economy works uh, today. You can, you can see how that process works. Um, he also goes on to note that because of their place on the periphery of the world economy and their eventual marginalization and poverty, First Nations in Canada were seen as analogous, analogous? analogous to people in the developing world. So, so I guess the idea is that what happened to North American indigenous people can be seen in as the same process as what happens is what has happened and is currently happening to people, to indigenous people in the global South, right? Um, an extractive resource, co resource company, shows up in your land, starts digging a mine, starts clearing the forest or whatever, you who live there, um, they clear you off, they put you into, they clear you off the land or they make a little reserve for you or they sh shunt you into cities and and you're also exposed to um, all that stuff, whatever. It's not... Uh, it's a, it's a continuing story, I suppose. Uh, he goes on to talk about something called dependency theory. I don't have any notes on that, but uh, it, could be, it could be more important than I'm realizing. Uh, he also, I think there's some question of whether uh, the Cree people on the plains were... Um, existing residents of the plains or whether they uh, originated farther east and then migrated west. Yeah, I think he talks more about um, economic history versus ethno-history versus colonial discourse versus post-colonial studies. That kind of debate doesn't really concern us uh, as we're reading the book. It seems like more of an academic thing. We're just reading the book. We're lay people. 
Uh, I don't have a university degree. <laughs> Jill has forgotten everything that she's learned in university, although she does have a history, an honors history degree. I mean... <laughs> in, Man- in Manitoba history. It's in there somewhere. It's in there somewhere. Maybe some of it will come out if she hangs out with me while I do, <laughs> while I do more of these. <laughs> but it certainly doesn't have to. But, uh, yeah. Ethno-history versus economic history versus post-colonial studies or all that stuff i suppose if you know more than me about that stuff you that uh you might have more to say about it but i don't really know much so i'm i'm gonna leave that be i'm just trying to to read the book and understand it uh the best i can i think he all he though does want to note that his book is an attempt at a different approach than all the other previous uh, previous approaches that were mentioned. I think there's some critique about being about colonial discourse makes it a blunt tool of analysis. I think he's trying to add some more some more nuance to the story. Um, he's not an explicit Marxist either, although he is uh, looking at material forces and material conditions. And then after that, he goes on to. Um, the rest of the introduction is a little short description of each chapter in sequence. And I think I'm going to leave that for now. Um, so you can keep reading till the end of the introduction if you like, and we'll pick up with chapter one, uh, for the next recording, which I'm going to try to do, uh, next week. I think do one of these a week till I get the, finish reading the book. I think there's nine chapters. I think I'll just leave it there. There are sections called like critical responses at the end, but I think I'm just going to leave that for now. I don't think I'm going to do two uh, episodes on, on that section, but uh, nine chapters, 10 episodes, including this one, one a week. Now I've, now I've said it, now I'm going to have to do it. And I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this history book. And you're all going to have to listen to me do it. Uh, <laughs> unless you are not, unless you stop the podcast or just skip these episodes. So I think, um, yeah, that is about it for now. Chapter one next time is indigenous health, environment and disease before Europeans. So we're talking about pre contact times in chapter one and uh what that was like so thanks for listening to my rambling introduction episode and thanks to jill for hanging out with me while i while i do it and we are going to catch you in chapter one of james dashuk's clearing the plains Bye-bye.